Welcome to the Legal Lowdown Podcast by Barton Gilman. I'm your host, Diana Bodette, and joining me today is family law attorney, Rui Alves, to talk about how assets are divided in Massachusetts divorces. Welcome, Rui. Thanks for joining me. Hello, Diana. Thank you for having me. So I think this is probably a hot and difficult topic, but we'll get started. And my first question is, what exactly counts as an asset in the eyes of Massachusetts divorce courts? So that's an interesting and ever-evolving question. But for the most part, there are a series of assets that the court will consider in a divorce setting. I'm going to avoid the question of whether an asset is or is not considered of the marriage, because that can be a bit complicated. Um, that really something you should, person who's considering a divorce should really talk to an experienced divorce practitioner about whether an asset may or may not be considered a marital asset. But the types of assets that are generally considered are the ones traditionally folks would think of. Uh, the biggest one in most divorce cases is someone's home. Um, if they own their home, it tends to be one of their larger assets. Um, And if they own multiple homes, that's something um, that the court's going to generally consider a marital asset, again, with some exceptions. And then other types of larger assets are retirement assets. Those tend to be the second or equally, if sometimes larger than their home. In other words, the equity in the home, you know, and those can be in very many different forms. They can be in 401ks, Um, in IRAs, in money market accounts, and um, in some cases, although less common now, in a defined benefit plan or or a pension. Okay. So if you have a designated beneficiary before you change who that person is, as your divorce approaches, you need to make sure that it's considered? Right. Changing beneficiaries is generally not allowed in a divorce setting uh, during the divorce process. But in terms of knowing which assets you have and knowing the approximate values. I find that folks sometimes tend not to look at their retirement assets as often as some other folks do, or they don't really understand what type of assets they have. They just say, well, I have some retirement accounts. And they don't necessarily know if they're 401ks or IRAs or exactly what they are. And sometimes people come to find out that they have assets they don't realize they they do because they aren't necessarily keeping a mindful eye on those. What's also important is to consider what your spouse's assets may be in terms of retirement. A lot of folks don't necessarily know. They're not fully aware. In addition, they don't know if their spouse uh, maybe has taken a loan against that retirement asset or has withdrawn or, or liquidated a retirement asset. Um, and they come to find out that out through the divorce process. Okay. And just, I wanted to jump back on a question on the home as a marital asset. I have two questions for you. If you're approaching divorce, you and your spouse are separating, and one of them sells like a second home um, ahead of that, and you weren't aware of that, how would that be handled in the court? Well, the question would be, if you weren't aware of it, it, presumably that asset was solely in your spouse's name. And if it was a marital asset or depending upon where the funds went, uh, the court may consider um, the disposition of those funds or those funds part of the marital estate. One thing in every divorce action in the Commonwealth, parties are required to fill out a financial form. 
And in that financial form, it lists um, your income, your assets, your liabilities, and a number of other things. And you are required to be truthful because you sign it under the penalties of perjury. It's amazing to me how uh, much information one spouse gets about the other spouse from their financial form, whether it be that they find out they have an asset that didn't exist or they find out they don't have this asset anymore. It's gone because of their spouse's um, actions. Okay. Okay. And that, you know what, you answered my second question, which is if you've inherited like a long-owned family home, one spouse did, how that's handled. Um, and that I, I'm thinking in terms of that home probably went in just one spouse's name, not the other. Right. And the court has a very different analysis on how it treats inheritance, whether they're expected inheritances or they're um, monies that are actually have been received by one spouse, whether it will consider uh, that asset or those monies marital or a portion thereof. And um, without going too far into that, it's important that um, if someone's anticipating a divorce or a separation and with a eminent divorce action being filed, that they try to gather as much information as possible as it comes in, whether it's trying to realize what kind of statements are coming in from different uh, financial institutions, what type of credit cards are there out there that are coming in, whether they're retirement statements, mortgage statements. There's a whole litany of documents that we ask our clients to collect, which if you're anticipating that action, being prepared is always is always helpful. Okay. Okay. Um, so other types of assets, would they include boats or other recreational things? Um, like to use the old school word campers or things like that, do those also count? Sure, absolutely. Specifically on the financial form, it says cars, trucks, ATVs, snowmobiles, tractors, motorcycles, boats, recreational vehicles, aircraft, farm, machinery, etc. So it's an all-encompassing set, you know, in other words, a term of of, of assets. And it never ceases to amaze me what type of stuff people collect and what that value is. And I think that I'm always being surprised by another type of asset that someone has and the value it has. And sometimes parties are not aware of it. They just know it's that thing that gets stuck in the garage and they come to find out it's worth a lot of money. Yeah. Well, and you can imagine one spouse or the other just thinking it's theirs. Because it's the thing that they use. Um, I don't know if this is an example, but would jewelry be an asset where a spouse would think, well, that's my jewelry, but is it a marital asset? It can be. And there's a different analysis on how the court looks at those types of assets where, you know, in terms of gifts. But it's important to realize that if you're trying to anticipate whether you're the one filing a divorce or you anticipate being served with divorce papers, that you try to make a list or inventory of everything that you have. It's amazing that things disappear when divorces are about to be filed or you know have been filed. Things just disappear from the home. And it's amazing how neither party knows where that thing went. So the more you can do to keep track of it, take pictures of it, it it's helpful. Okay. Well, that's great advice. Um, so what happens if you or your spouse accidentally or deliberately hide, lose a 24-foot boat or another asset. Um, does that happen? Do you see that much? You do see that in some cases, people will try to liquidate or sell an asset 
in anticipation of a divorce and use that money for a non-marital purpose, or in some cases, try to transfer an asset into a family member's name, which has happened in the past where someone gives a piece of real estate or an asset to their mother or their brother or their girlfriend, which unfortunately happens while they're still married. So it's important to realize that assets can be dissipated in many different ways. Um, Some people hide them and try to shield them from being exposed in a divorce. And there's ways through um, the divorce process that a skilled uh, divorce attorney can find uh, hidden assets. But it's also important to realize that some people dissipate them. They gamble them or they um, use them on other uh, non-marital purposes. Mm-hmm. And is the, what happens in that case? Well, you know, assuming that there's enough assets in the estate, someone's dissipation or someone's, you know, wasting, uh, as the court calls it, marital monies on gambling can take that from that spouse's share and give it to the other spouse. So, in other words, give the other spouse a credit um, for that money. In other words, giving that uh, the person who's wasted it, basically saying you get that much less in certain cases because uh, you wasted that money. Okay. So there is a repercussion. Yeah. And how is the value of those assets determined? Is that something that you hold on to your paperwork and it's based on, you know, I, I'm thinking in the case of things that lose value, like a car. Um, And then there's your home, which probably gains value. Who figures that out and whose responsibility and how do you document that? So in some cases where the parties come to an agreement, they can come to an agreement on what the equity is, on on what the value of the the home is, um, subtracting, you know, any mortgages or liens or any other or those type of things. Um, in contentious uh, cases, the parties will usually hire an appraiser, uh, whether it's a joint appraiser or they each get their own appraiser to determine the value of the home. And in some cases where they completely disagree, sometimes they sell the home to see what the actual market value is of the home. Um, with respect to other assets, cars can also be appraised, although that tends to be less likely. You can rely upon a number of factors out there, Kelly Blue Book, and there's other factors to determine what the what the car is worth. Um, and in some cases, the cars, as you mentioned, may have a negative equity value. Also with leases, they tend not to have a value, although some do. They tend to be more of a debt than a actual value. So you, you'd have to work with your attorney on a case and asset by asset basis to determine what those, what those values would be. Okay. So you're not on your own on figuring that out. The attorney works with you on it. Um, And then for families that are involved in some kind of family business, how is that handled? I would imagine that's pretty tricky. Business valuations in the Commonwealth tend to be complicated in some instances. Uh, There's case law. Bernier is a preeminent case uh, with regard to business valuations in the Commonwealth. A business valuation in itself can be complicated if you tack on a family business or a closely held business. It can be further complicated because parties may be working in this business together. They may be um, other partners that are close family members. It may have been an asset of the family. In other words, it's a generational business that's been with one party or another. Um, and there, you know, the, the idea of selling that asset. And then, quite frankly, people can disagree about what the value is. And you know, the value that most folks think of in a traditional business sense may not necessarily or quite frankly, would not be the same 
that a court may decide that value to be. So that's where it's important to work with a, a experienced divorce practitioner who can walk you through those steps. Another thing to consider is that if you're anticipating a divorce, it's important that you speak to a, a lawyer ahead of time. It's amazing, again, how information goes missing as soon as a divorce goes gets filed. And there are a number of other possibilities. So talking to a lawyer ahead of time can save you a lot of uh, headache and possibly a lot of money in the, in the long run. Okay. All right. That's helpful and sad at the same time. <laughs> um, what kind of factors weigh in on the asset division? Is there anything in terms of how long the marriage lasted, why the marriage is dissolving, if one or the other is to blame for that? How do children come into play in the ages of children, the ages of the people involved? Does any of that come to bear when it comes to that division? Yes. In the Commonwealth, the Mass General Law 208, Section 34, specifically talks about the factors uh, that the court is going to consider or may consider with regard to division of, of a marital estate. We would spend a lot of time and uh, probably more than this podcast talking about all the individual factors, but you did mention um, more than one. Um, the length of the marriage is important. Court's going to consider, uh, have these parties been together for short term, long term, in terms of the conduct of the parties during the marriage. And that can both positive and um, negative of both parties. People tend to think of the negative conduct immediately when they when they look at a divorce. But obviously, for the most part, people were with each other because they liked each other and they wanted to be together. And there were some good parts. And it's important to consider what the conduct of each party was. And, you know, the conduct that normally comes up uh, most often is um, adultery, you know, and how the court will weigh that in terms of division of assets, you know, something to consider that goes part and parcel with that is what sort of economic impact has that adulterous actions by one spouse or both of the spouses in different cases. Um, how has that impact the marriage? Has somebody been dissipating assets? Has somebody been wasting money on another paramour outside of the marriage? And that's something that should be considered because how those financial impacts play. Now, there is an emotional impact, and that's important, but the court's going to consider that probably more heavily with regard to abuse. Was there some sort of physical or verbal abuse? And one can imagine what happens in those situations. Yeah, that was going to be my follow-up question is um, abuse and in, just in controlling situations, how that is factored. Right. And I think it's important to realize that it's um, something that should be definitely discussed with your attorney. Um, about what type of, of abuse that someone has suffered uh, or continues to suffer. We tend to be cautious of those issues. There's a restraining order, 209A process to get a restraining order, both in the family court and in the district court. So uh, violence is a very serious matter and should be um, thoroughly discussed with your attorney. Okay. In that situation, does that take a different path at all? Does that result in a, an initial action and then the, the divorce is also maybe a kind of concurrent legal action that's happening? Or is it all wrapped together in a divorce? They are two separate actions, the 209A, the restraining order action, and the divorce petition, which is usually a contested divorce in this type of case, presumably, which is a 1B divorce. The 209A can be initiated both in the district court and in the family court. 
So if it's in the district court, it will generally will stay there and will be litigated there and resolved there. If it's in the probate and family court, the, the actions can travel together, meaning they can be in some cases heard together. But with regard to the 209A, if a temporary order is granted or the order is extended beyond the initial period, it can add some complications to your divorce. It's hard for parties to meet to resolve the divorce. And then it adds uh, extended complications with regard to child custody and both legal and physical custody, which... (laughs) That's another podcast. Deal with another podcast, yes. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Okay. In terms of asset division, what kind of paperwork is required? What can people expect? Well, the financial form or the financial statement really is divided up into two different documents. And if you're if your income is under $75,000, you tend you fill what's called a short form out, which is a, a shorter four-page plus document to fill out. Um, if your income is over $75,000 annually, you're, you're going to fill out the long form. And that's minimally nine pages, but tends to be much longer. You know, the, the basic paperwork that one would want to have is um, your income taxes, the most recent ones. Those are very important. Um, those tend to help show information that you may not necessarily know off the top of your head. Um, if, if you or your spouse is employed, any sort of W-2s or 1099s or that type of information. Bank account information is important um, to the extent you have access to it. And mortgage statements, retirement statements, and credit card statements, any information regarding debts. Uh, those are a good starting point um, to filling out a financial form. And are you recommending that a person bring in just their information, or do you ask people to try to find, I don't even know if this is a good question to ask, but is it you're asking people to get as much as they can for both themselves and their spouse combined and individually? Yes. As long as they're doing it in a lawful manner, yes. You'd want to try to make sure that people get as much information for both themselves, their spouses, businesses to that extent. But um, I strongly encourage folks not to break any sort of state or federal laws in order to obtain that information, which unfortunately happens as well. Okay. Okay. And what happens if you don't do that paperwork or it's incomplete, you do it wrong? Um, What in the court's eyes would they um, then decide? Well, with respect to completing the financial statements, you know, it's important that the person work with their attorney. Um, There is a portion of the financial statement that both the party signed, but also the attorney signs. And the attorney has to make certain affirmations with respect to the the fact that this, you know, this information is is truthful, you know, to the best of their ability, you know, that that they have no knowledge, anything in it is false. Um, So they're, you know, parties are not on their own. And with an experienced attorney, you're going to try to do the best you can to put it together. It has to be as complete as possible at that point. But in in certain cases, people don't know information or they're not aware of it because they don't have access. They were shut out. There's a number of reasons why they wouldn't have this information. So they could fill it out. And then at some point, it could be amended if they find out information. Um, There's a process by which in a contested divorce have to disclose certain information to the other spouse within a certain period of time. And that tends to be um, helpful in terms of getting information. Okay. What sort of best practices, mistakes, anecdotes 
do you have that you could share with people that you've seen along the way that might be helpful to illustrate some of the things that you've mentioned? I think it's important that if folks are contemplating a divorce or, or feel that they're going to be subject to a divorce action, sometimes, in, you know, obviously one, so there are many cases where people, uh, where one party does not want to get divorced. But it's important with respect to the financial matters to, to try to get the best grip you can on what's happening with your finances. I find that uh, some folks just don't look at certain financial information. They have access to it. They just don't necessarily keep an eye on that. So, you know, it's important to not sort of turn a blind eye if you know that this is coming. And it's important to seek out good advice and to figure out what the best path is for, you know, for you. I find that some folks um, come in with ideas in terms of how they feel their divorce is going to end and don't realize that there are lots of other options out there for them. You know, another option is if you're contemplating a divorce in addition to speaking to an attorney is to speak to a good financial planner or um, there are certain divorce certified financial planners out there who can help you work through different financial scenarios in terms of what what is this going to look like when I'm done. And this could be obviously for both parties, the person who's could be the higher wage earner and the person who's not. So there's lots of resources out there. Uh, it's important to try to find them or connect with a, the right divorce lawyer to get you to those resources. Okay. That's great advice. I would imagine it's a, such a difficult time that it can feel a little hopeless for some people. So a good reminder that it's not. Thank you for joining me today, Rui. This has been an interesting and very helpful conversation. And I look forward to doing some future podcasts on some of the topics that we mentioned today that we were only able to touch on. But I appreciate your time. And for anybody that's interested in finding more information about Barton Gilman and Rui, you can find us at www.bglaw.com. And you can also find us on all of our social media accounts by searching Barton Gilman. Thanks again, Rui. I wish you and your family the best, and I look forward to having you join us again. Likewise. Thank you very much, Diana, for having me. The content provided in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to constitute legal advice or to form an attorney-client relationship. If you would like to seek legal advice from a Barton Gilman attorney, please visit us at www.bglaw.com or call 888-273-9903 for more information. Barton Gilman serves clients throughout the Northeast with offices in Boston, Providence, and New York, offering legal services in a wide variety of matters, including medical and other professional liability defense, premises liability and business litigation, education law, employment, family law, insurance coverage, trust and estates, criminal defense, corporate formation, and intellectual property. The firm and its attorneys have received numerous awards and accolades including Best Lawyers, Best Law Firms, Best Places to Work Rhode Island, Outstanding Philanthropic Business, the Common Good Award, and Super Lawyers. For more information about Barton Gilman, please visit our website at www.bglaw.com or call us toll-free at 888-273-9903.